Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic and absolutely wonderfully educational show for you this evening. Heather Penny is here. We're going to talk about the National Aerospace Defense Strategy, her background in that, a little bit of history, and some amazing stuff about what is coming and what we need to do as a nation in order to prepare for that. Before we get started, a couple things. First of all, we are in the last stretch right now of our Fly to Win Challenge on the on Social Flight in the mobile app or on the web. All you need to do is get the free app for your Apple or Android devices and go on there, sign up for the Fly to Win Challenge and just check in at your local airport or any other airports along the way. You get points every single time. And even if you do this only once, you're entered into the drawing to win a Lightspeed Zulu 3 that we are giving away on June 1st. So like I said, go in, check in, it's super easy. If you do manage to check in at lots of different airports and get more points, you could go onto our leaderboard, which gets you extra entries in order to for that drawing and a much better chance of actually winning the headset. So we do this on a regular basis. We're always giving stuff away here at Social Flight. And I'm uh, absolutely, I, I love it. I love it meeting each winner each time online and find out what their story was. So look forward to that as well. Tonight's broadcast will also be part of our podcast, which you can get on any of your podcast streaming services. And I'd also like to point out that through Social Flight, we have our FAA learning system where you can watch and take courses for WINGS credit, get certificates, your AMP. Um, when, uh, if you happen to be an AMP, you can be part of the FAA's AMT, Aviation Maintenance Technician Awards program. And when you take those courses, it automatically sends everything to the FAA to enroll you and give you the points. And then if you happen to be an AMP with an inspection authorization, an IA, you need to have eight hours of continuing education if you'd like to use that as your renewal for every uh, uh, each two years Then they do the renewal. And that is all available on demand on your own schedule directly in Social Flight. Just go to Social Flight and look uh, for the FAA uh, icon at the top. Click on that. It'll take you through everything that you need. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Aspen Avionics. They have an amazing trade-up program going on right now. You can upgrade to the MAX, the actual MAX PFD that they have, which I fly behind. And if you upgrade to that, you can actually add another tube. You can go and get an MFD uh, from, uh, from uh, Aspen and... The, and they'll do that for only 50, for 50% off is what they're actually offering. And this is actually something that we just did. So I want to show you really quickly before we get into the program. Um, we actually did this, and this is a, a first on the ground, uh, or actually, no, this is airborne. <laughs> but um, this is a picture of how we just added a new one that you can see on the right that has the airport diagram. And this is our, uh, our Bonanza here at Social Flight and the second display from Aspen, which I absolutely love. We took a trip down to Clemson, had a ton of weather along the way, 
And uh, this shows you what you can actually see if you have two displays and how important that can be to your situational awareness. So just a thank you to Aspen for supporting general aviation and supporting everything that we do here at Social Flight. And now on to our featured guest. Major Heather Penny is just so wonderful. On September 11th, 2001, Major Heather Lucky Penny accepted a one-way mission in an unarmed F-16 fighting Falcon to intercept and down United Airlines Flight 93, believed to be headed to the U.S. Capitol. If you'd like to hear her amazing story in detail, you can find the recording of that episode when she appeared here on Social Flight Live. It's available on YouTube. Just search for Social Flight, one word, Social Flight, on YouTube. You'll come to our channel. You can find that previous episode that we did with Heather Penny before she came back tonight to join us. Following 9-11, Major Penny served two combat tours of duty in the Iraq War. She's currently a senior resident fellow at the Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Studies, researching and advising on defense policy, research, and analysis. Tonight, we are going to chat about the history of our nation's aerospace defense, where it stands today, and what needs to change in order to defend against the existential threats which are building around the world. Heather Penny is an absolute expert in this, and I'm thrilled to have her here. I'm going to bring her on the line right now. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Heather Penny. How are you, Heather? Hey, Jeff. Thank you so much. You know, first of all, before we get started, I have to say um, I found Social Flight because I was looking for fun and cool things to do in my little airplanes. Um, and it's just awesome how you've grown it. Like, there's just so much more to do with the app. I'm constantly finding new things, and I love the contest. So thank you for everything you're doing there with Social Flight. You are so welcome, and I understand that you yourself, since you are very rooted in general aviation, you're planning an event at your local airport coming up? Yes, and we're going to advertise it on social flight. We're uh, going to host a poker run. Um, yeah, so we're run. yeah trying to bring folks into our little airport and, and really contribute and give back to everyone uh, in our local regional community. Isn't that wonderful? And you're at Two Whiskey Five down in uh, yep. outside D.C.? Yep, yep, outside D.C. in the uh, special flight rules area which a lot of folks are really um, anxious about flying inside of the airspace around DC. But if you can file a flight plan, if you can talk to controllers, you can fly inside the Cifra. It's, they're so good. The controllers are so nice. It's really not that hard. Wow. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I'm very grateful. And, and you know, we're all here to support general aviation. And of course, being able to support your airport, have a poker run, which is so much fun. And, uh, and then we'll be sure to promote the heck out of it on social flight. So <laughs> thank you. I, wa I want to get to the, this is kind of like the second half of your uh, life so far, or maybe the second third, who knows. But you, you know, you went from first, you know, in person working in, in defense and, and being an active uh, combat pilot. Tell me a little bit about that transition to what brought you to the Mitchell Institute and taking and kind of transitioning your career into helping craft our nation's defense strategy? No, thank you for asking. You know, I, so as a warfighter, um, I just have to say, people say, well, you know, did you love the F-16? Do you miss it? Every day, every day. I miss the jet. I miss the mission. I miss the brotherhood. I miss the squadron. Um, the culture, the, the, the pace of life, I just, every day I miss it. I don't think you'll meet a fighter pilot who doesn't miss being in the fighter squadron. 
But um, I had to step out of the jet because I was a single mom with two little girls. Um, and so I went over to the our sister squadron in the same wing and, and flew uh, DV airlift in little Astro jets. So that was that was a blast. But it's kind of like net, net jets for generals. I was home every night. So that worked with my daughters. Um, and then I got uh, headhunted by Lockheed Martin. And so I worked for Lockheed Martin in the defense industry for another 12 years uh, while I was serving part-time with the, uh, the Air National Guard. And I really valued that period of time because I worked on the F-22 program, the F-16 program, the F-35 program, and I felt like it was a way for me to continue to serve. At the same time, though, I still kind of felt this hunger to, to get more broad beyond the programs that were specific just to Lockheed Martin. And so I made the leap into the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, which is a think tank, uh, nonpartisan objective, um, because I really felt like I wanted to do more to continue to serve. Because mm -hmm. as you mentioned on 9-11, uh, with Mark Sassabil, he and I were sent on a suicide mission. And I really feel like it's, this purpose, this part of my life is to ensure that that the young men and women that we have in service today that that are wearing the flight suit and doing the job, that we don't send them also on another suicide mission because we failed to prepare. Mm. So that's why I'm here at Mitchell. What a wonderful place to be and and, and what a what an amazing direction to to be taking your career. It, it really is fascinating to be on the front line sacrificing yourself and 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 then really looking at how you can craft how the nation approaches defense. I'm, I'm, I'm really in awe on that, uh, uh, truly. I, before we get to a discussion specifically on kind of where we are today and, and what needs to change and what your strategy advice has been from the Mitchell Institute, let's set a little bit of a baseline. Um, and it seems to start with, when we think about modern air power, with the concept of ramping up for World War II, how how we as a nation were able to go from not having air power to all of a sudden being able to participate in, in, in such a dramatic and expansive effort so that we can understand better what we'd have to do today. Tell us a little bit about, just bring us, a, give us a baseline. Jeff, you brought up like the whole ramp up into World War II. So you're actually already starting in the right place right, uh, 1938, where, um, you know, FDR says, I want our defense industry to produce 80,000 aircraft a year. Uh, at the time, the Army Air Corps only had 3,000 aircraft, and only 1,500 of those were, were airworthy. The, the goal that he set for the air, the, I'm not going to, I'm going to say aerospace, it's really the aviation industry, because there was no space back then. <laughs> the goal that he set for the aviation industry was utterly outlandish mm. um and so we missed it by miles and as a matter of fact i mean it was good though that he started in 1938 um and used the opportunity to do lend lease uh to begin to build up the american defense industry because it would take us until the middle of 1943 to really meet the level of production output that was required to win world war ii so i think many five of us had Yes, five years. And that was starting off with, um, you know, a, a, an American economy that was based off of manufacturing. Mm. We had mom and pop tool shops. 
you know, the people that actually make the tools that then go on to the production lines. Those were all over the nation. You could go down, you know, to your local corner store um, and find a machinist there to make a tool for something. We, we were a nation that made things back then. Mm -hmm. And it still took us five years to retool everyone. We had the industry available and the automotive uh, industry to switch them over to tanks, to switch them over to aircraft, Ford built B-24s. Um, we don't have that today. Right. So what happened that that changed that? I'm assuming that, you know, we go, obviously there's a lot in between uh, there and today, but you've yeah. got Korea War, you've got Vietnam War, you've got things like that. But at the end of the day, in modern history, the turning point seems to be the fall of the Soviet Union and the, the end of the Cold War. Is that correct? Absolutely. You've got it spot on. Um, before we move there, though, um, I do want to say to your listeners, there's some excellent books um, about the industrial base during World War II. So um, Freedom's Forge by Arthur Herman, who I know personally, he is an utter gentleman, um, a wonderful individual. Uh, so Freedom's Forge is a very accessible book on the defense industrial base in World War II. Um, Maury Klein has a, 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 a tome, uh, its title is Call to Arms, and it is incredibly interesting. There's so much about everything from the economy to, uh, to tooling to how it was managed um, that he's able to bring to life. And, it, and of course, you've also got um, A.J. Uh, Bain's Arsenal of Democracy. So some excellent books if folks want to dive into that more. But here's, before we move on, what's really important about that is because we as a nation did not have the uh, strategic reserve of forces and we didn't have the standing forces uh, to put forward. When you look at what, was, what happened during the combined bombing operation um, between Europe and across to the continent, you have Ira Aker just barely holding on, on on a daily basis, trying to ensure that he can put enough bombers and boys in the air, and back then it, they were all boys, so enough bombers and boys in the air to go hit their targets with hopefully enough concentration and enough mass to do damage and hope that enough of them would come home that he could do that again the next day. It was always on the ragged edge of holding back enough forces so that he knew that he could fight the next day and putting enough forces in the air to actually do the job because we did not have the production output or the pilot output to be able to feed the fight forward. And it's not until 1943 that we're finally able to do that. And then when we're able to do that, we're able to establish air superiority over the continent, which is what makes D-Day possible, right? Wow. It's, it's interesting because I don't think the average person thinks about it in those terms, that at 1941, when we finally decided to, you know, to, to go to war, that we actually didn't have the forces to do that. No. I think everyone just imagines it was like, as the quote, you know, waking a sleeping giant and, and all of a sudden the giant just woke up. But we didn't have that. And that's part of kind of where we're going with the discussion of how, how did we get there? Yeah. And, and Jeff, you're absolutely right. We were not a giant. We were a manufacturing giant, but not a defense industrial based giant. 
and we didn't have the standing forces. So this is really important. You know, Acre is, he's trying to put enough bombers in the air to do damage and to hurt, hurt the enemy. Um, but because we don't have enough forces to really have a swift, concentrated pounding, what ends up happening is the longer that conflict took, so it took us, you know, two and a half years from 41 to the middle of 33, and if you add the two more on top of it from the beginning, from 1938, um, it actually ends up costing more money. So it's greater cost in treasure, but more importantly, greater cost in blood. Because if you can't field the concentration of forces, what you're really doing is just, you're gonna die more the next day because you have to continue to go back and revisit those targets. The adversary, the enemy has time to see what you have. They can adapt, they can shift, they can. So it, the longer and more protracted a conflict is, especially if you're just barely holding on like Acre was back then, the more young people are going to die. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And you're inherently in Ukraine. advantage, right? Because the, the aggressor in any war, the initiator of that is the one that's going to build up its forces and choose when they engage. Yeah, yep, exactly. So then we have that all those struggles that are to some degree forgotten and, and certainly books that are going to be on my shelf shortly um, to learn about it. And then a lot of this starts to almost go out of fashion of very quickly of like, let's mothball. We're not going to need any of this stuff again. Let's, let's start cutting production, which seems to keep going down and down and, and until it hits a cliff at the cold war. And absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people think of the 1980s and the Reagan buildup as this like, massive defense buildup, right? Well, what Reagan was actually doing was he was turning over the force. So mm -hmm. as you, as you, in the 1970s, we're, we're inventing and designing what we call today fourth generation aircraft. So mm -hmm. that's your um, F-16, your F-15, your A-10, um, your Hornet, your, your F-14, right? These are designed in the late 1930s. They're starting to be built in the 1970s. This is the time of the hollow force um, because uh, you have F-15 sitting on the ramp with no engines. Pilots don't have, there's not the flying hours to actually be able to go fly the airplanes. Um, so they're just, every, every one of us here is a pilot, right? We've all been just proficient enough, just, just legal enough to scare ourselves, but not, you know, not proficient enough. Just, I'm just current enough to be dangerous, right? Well, that's what the hollow force was like. And, um, you know, and it was, it was really, we were on that, again, that, that training, that ragged edge. But the good news was that because those aircraft had been designed in the 60s, late 60s, they were programs of record and they were, they were doing early builds in the 70s that when Reagan comes into office, he basically says, I still have all these Century Series fighters um, in my inventory. That is not going to be sufficient against the Soviet Union. So he boosts production. We buy 200 to 300 fighters a year. 200 to 300 fighters a year, and he retires the others. So F-100s go away, F-101s go away, F-104s, F-105s, uh, they go to the, re the reserves, but our active duty forces, and then that trickles down to um, the guard and the reserve, they're now being equipped with modern 
fourth generation fighters that are capable of, you know, really meeting a peer adversary, a great power, the Soviet Union. And the other thing that he does is to build out of that hollow force is not only does he transform the force, because actually inventory, aircraft inventories don't really grow in the 1980s. Like I said, we just get rid of the old stuff and we bring in the new. But he also trains the pilots. So the budget then was sufficient to have the spare parts, the fuel, the flying hours to make sure that these guys flew. Mm -hmm. And they did. So you see a resurgence of all the, the, the exercises, um, the checkered flags, the red flags, the, the green flags, the William Tells. Um, and we found that that readiness was really important to our assessment of how we would be able to handle the Soviet threat. Because we knew that the Soviets had a much, much larger inventory, and not just a larger inventory of aircraft, but a much larger inventory of army. Mm -hmm. And so this is an important point, especially if we want to talk about Ukraine a little bit later on. The Soviet uh, doctrine and force design relies primarily on land forces. And they treat their air power as if they're either um, a goalie defense, so you've got your, your surface-to-air missiles that are forward, they're going to provide your main defense against Western fighters uh, or Western bombers. And then behind that, you have your Soviet fighters. And they'll, they'll do that goalie defense when it comes to the air. And mm -hmm. then they treat their other uh, aircraft, their other fighters that are doing interdiction, primarily for close air support. So they're really, they have a very different doctrine, a very different operational concept of how they use their air power because they prioritize their land power. What that requires the Soviet Union to do is hold a very, very large standing army all the time. Now in the West, uh, following World War II, um, you really have Truman and Eisenhower saying, we cannot afford to hold a large standing army. Not only is it expensive, but our people want to get back to their jobs. They want to go back to what they're doing. So. They shift, their, they shift the force design of our whole military where we do have an army, but we use air power in a different way, in a way that was pioneered by the forefathers uh, of air power, right? Um, where we use bombers to go after those strategic targets. Um, we're gonna do interdiction well behind the, the forward line of troops and the forward line of the forward edge of the battle area. So we're really, uh, and we're providing air support so we can protect our, our, our boys on the ground from any uh, enemy fighters or, um, or bombers or missiles and things like that. And what that does is it allows us to have a smaller standing army, less tanks, less artillery and so mm -hmm. forth, because your air power is going over. And we don't have to fight through in a two-dimensional kind of way. So very different doctrine, very different operational concepts between the Soviet Union and Western forces leads to a different force design but also, you know, people, you know, might not, it's sort of counterintuitive, but it means that our standing military, all of the joint forces, um, is costs much less because, mm -hmm. uh, because of the way that we fight. So that's, that will go, that's what goes on uh, in, in the 1980s with Reagan. And then, as you mentioned, we get to the Cold War, or we get to the end of the Cold War in 1991, and it all gets slashed and cut in half. 
Wow. Uh, Heather, I'm going to pause for one second. It looks like your screen may have froze. I'm going to turn off your webcam and try to turn it back on here and see if that gets you back live. Your audio is coming through fine. There you are. Perfect. Okay. Am I so, moving again? Yes, you are moving again. It was all the hand movements. I can't talk without my hands. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I will let you know if we have to do that again, but technology right. being what it is. Um, so that's... I, I, Obviously, that that's incredibly fascinating and different doctrine of approach and to all of that. And now our standing force, we're already it's already contracting, and all of a sudden the idea of the one big enemy of the world or of us that we had our adversary, the Soviet Union, has collapsed, and everyone is thinking we're not going to have to fight this way anymore. Yes, yeah, the end of history, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the world is now flat. See into history. We're all done. <laughs> so, what happened to our air power? The nation wants a peace dividend. They were they were angry about uh, the cost, the high cost of transforming the force during the Reagan era. Um, Desert Operation Desert Storm, which, by the way, I'm just going to make a little plug. Uh, my boss, Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, um, he is the major air, uh, air planner behind Desert Storm. Um, and so it's, it's a privilege to be able to work with him. But, you know, Desert Storm, the air campaign, was so decisive. And then Soviet Union falls, and we're like, well, um, we really don't need to have the large forces that we held in the 1980s during the Cold War. There's no, yeah, it's a unipolar. Let me pause on that for one second because you talked about the Russian doctrine and then you're, you're, you're hitting a, an extremely important point with how the Iraq war, uh, first Iraq war was uh, uh, prosecuted and the fact that the air power was what we were watching on television every night instead of ground troops going, that seems like a completely different doctrine. You're right. Um, and so this is this is very interesting. And Rich Reynolds has a great series of books. Um, the first one is uh, Heart of the Storm. And it's a small, it's a, and it, it's really, so Rich Reynolds, Heart of the Storm, um, he actually interviews all of the players of Desert Storm, from Colonel John Warden, who envisioned the Instant Thunder campaign, to to Horner and Glossen and Deptula, everyone who is there, personal interviews. This is an Air Force historical um, uh, activity that he goes and does, and then he writes it in a historical narrative, which is utterly accurate. So I again, I commend uh, your your audience to to pick that book up because it is it will open your eyes regarding how the air campaign was planned for Desert Storm because it was not airland battle. So it was, right. it was what, how air power won Desert Storm by essentially blinding, um, paralyzing, and uh, destroying the communications of the very Soviet-style hierarchical Iraqi military, paralyzed them to the point where this was not an attrition war, as you mentioned, Jeff. I mean, we just stopped everybody dead in their tracks. Uh, and as a result, the army, which follows after 36 days of combat, air, air, the air campaign, 36 days of the air campaign, 
in 100 hours, the army goes from Kuwait all the way up to Baghdad with very, very few losses. I remember that that the, all the amazing images, cutting off communications, radio towers getting blown up, specific bridges <laughs> that we all remember with Schwarzkopf showing how you know a lucky bicyclist made it across just before the you know the bridge went up. Everything seems to have been done in this culture, kind of almost this this culture of a fairly bloodless war. Like we can now go in and do yeah. things at this high level and then make it safer for our ground forces to go in. And that's yeah. how wars are gonna work from now on. Yeah, no, it, exactly. And you know, I'm glad you brought up some of the technologies like laser guided bombs, uh, early GPS, um, you know, how we, the, the technologies that we had, F-117, um, you know, it's, it's real combat uh, debut. These were technologies that came out of the Vietnam War mm. because the guys who flew in the Vietnam War that's where you're seeing your early, your early uh, paved pennies, your early laser-guided bombs. They're they're learning through hardened experience the kinds of technologies that they believe that they will need because they're also fighting Soviet um, technologies, right? In in Vietnam, um, they come up with these ideas of what we would need to do what they call the second offset. And again, like. Precision aviation and timing, uh, precision weapons, stealth, uh, you know, data links. Also, another really important piece that comes out of that that second offset allowed us to. You mentioned we were already kind of getting a little bit smaller, but that was those technologies allowed us to be more effective. So we could be smaller than the Soviet Union, but we could be better and more effective than them. So right. by combining those technologies from the second offset with the air campaign that was developed by um, Warden and Deptula and Horner, that allows us to have what you said, a fairly bloodless, fairly humane um, and decisive war. I mean, I, I hesitate to call wars humane, but I would say if, if you're going to look at one that's a model, that truly was, mm -hmm. right? Because of how, how quick it went, the, the very few losses on the U.S. side and coalition side, the very few losses on the Iraqi side, um, it really was sort of a textbook combat operation. That makes sense. And, and yet the challenge I think that, that we face as, as we look at the work that you're doing now is that that doesn't mean that that is going to be the model of our adversaries forever. That just happened to be the model in the Middle East at the time. You're right. And so following Desert Storm, um, which we'll come back to uh, importantly because that's where China goes to school. Mm. China, it, that is China's awakening moment. And we know this by their own writings, um, that that the overwhelming uh, overmatch and success of the U.S. military and specifically our air power is what makes China go, we need to watch the U.S. And historically, China and Russia have always had a frenemy type relationship, but that's when China really looks at the United States and says, that will be our major competitor. Mm -hmm. 
and without the a meantime, doubt, they are very, very good at, at 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 recognizing technologies and approaches and copying where appropriate. <laughs> yeah, or stealing where appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and at the same time, they have the strategic patience. So, so 91 wakes China up and, and they go to school. So it's funny, I look at my boss and I go, you know, General Deptula, this is all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> but in the US, we're like, hey, war's over. Soviets, Soviet Union's done. Um, hey, we got all this stuff. We don't need this stuff. We, you know, and so, so literally the nation cuts the Air Force in half in half. We, we do a reduction in forces, we kick pilots out, um, we close down pilot training bases, uh, we go through, a, a, at the time, in 1991, um, Lockheed Martin had just won the F-22 program, and we see that program whittled down from 750 to 443 to 381. Aircraft. Um, yeah, the, the, the total program planned by, right? And we're seeing those quantities come down and we don't even have, I mean, the first one hasn't even, you know, rolled off the, pr the production line yet. And we're already going, oh, we don't need a stealth fighter. We don't need to replace F-15s. Um, so we're already beginning to, in the 1990s, uh, make decisions that we are now living with today. Mm -hmm. And that uh, a major one uh, is the Last Supper. Tell me about so, that. Yeah, uh, Bill Perry brings in the CEOs of the major defense contractors and says, we are not going to have enough programs to keep all of you viable. Some of you will go out of business and we will not stop it. And so that leaves CEOs looking at, you know, looking at each other across the table going, well, which one of us is it going to be? So we see some major consolidations, M&A, you know, mergers and acquisitions uh, through the rest of the 1990s as companies are seeking to buy up engineers, um, preserve some kind of uh, production capacity, uh, maybe acquire programs that could be just lucrative enough. This is where you see uh, defense companies um, really, really grow in size because they're they're do, they're now suddenly more than just aircraft companies. Mm -hmm. They are now aircraft in space and sensor and communication and and so so their portfolios expand dramatically through those acquisitions. But yeah. that's what allows them to stay alive. But we also see a number of programs really get slashed, um, and and also consolidate. That's where the JSF came out of, right? Yep. Um, sort of the uh, uh, <laughs> the TFX program reinvented. <laughs> so give us some perspective. Where are we today in terms of force level? Uh, so if, if, there's, if there's a wake-up call to people of what we really have in reserve, or not, I don't call it, I don't mean in reserve in the, in the purest sense, but what we really have in capacity um, in our military for both pilots and uh, aviation assets, tell, give us uh, the, the straight talk. 
our Air Force is the smallest, the oldest, and the least ready that it has ever been in its history. That's it. That's, that's my bottom line. Um, even after 9-11, we continue to shrink in force. And we were only able to, and, that, and I'm talking about the total force, right? So you're still seeing uh, Air National Guard units lose their flying missions. You're seeing the active duty get rid of 243, uh, you know, fourth generation fighters. Um, you see the F-22 program uh, prematurely terminated at 170 air, 187 aircraft. Uh, you see next generation bomber get canceled. The program just get canceled and pushed off to the right. Fortunately, now B-21, which was revived out of that program and re-envisioned, um, has now been revealed to the public. Uh, we're waiting on its first flight. But we're still flying fighters from the 1980s. The F-16 that I scrambled on 9-11 was built in 1985, and it is still in service. We're flying, the, the bulk of our tanker fleet uh, is from the Eisenhower era. Mm -hmm. um, the bombers are from the, the, the B-52 is from the Truman era. So, and that's, and the B-52 is the bulk of our, of our bomber fleet, right? Right. It, Something it, it, that was designed in 1947. <laughs> the B-2 was, we were supposed to have 132 B-2s. We bought 20 of them. That's, that's the thing I think it was just so striking. If, if you... If, if it all takes is a little bit of, of Googling by anybody, a little bit of research, and you see what the numbers are of aircraft, it, I don't think it's what people think. It, it's, it's shockingly small in terms of what the production numbers are today, um, yeah. certainly compared to what they were and what the actual, what our capacity is. Um, and another example is whether we actually have readiness in the aircraft that are actually out there. We had Ken Katz here on the show, author of the B1 Bo Bone book, which talked about how the B1 Love the B1. Was, <laughs> yes, and how it was used in Desert in Desert Storm and and Desert it, like to in a way that it wasn't really intended, and how they're fatiguing out, how how difficult it is, and how they keep cutting the force, and how many B1s get go down, 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 as they just try to keep some of them in the air and the same type of thing for the B-52, it seems like our forces is, is rapidly shrinking for many factors. Yeah, no, you're in, and the B-1 is a great example, right? Because that's an example where, um, you know, like you said, we use that force in a way where it wasn't designed and we used it hard, uh, which induced a lot of structural fatigue, but rather than addressing that through, um, you know, a service life extension, they said, it's just too expensive um, because of budget reasons, we'll get rid of some of the least, you know, some of the most damaged, some of the, the, the longest in the tooth B1s. What does that do for the remainder? The combatant commander's demand has not gone down. So mm -hmm. it just spins those guys faster and harder. And so they wear out faster than they, they should, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing happened to the B2, same things happened to the F22, same thing as, I mean, it's kind of hard to say the same thing happened to the F-15 because the fourth generation fighters are so old um, that, that they were already getting towards the end of their service life 
they'd been through multiple service life extensions, then the fleet's cut in half. We go off to, um, you know, the Air Force never left desert, you know, the desert. After 1991, the Air Force stayed for Operation Southern Watch, then Operation Northern Watch, then everything that happened post 9-11. So we've been using our Air Force hard. The Air Force never came home. Mm. Um, uh, you know, to, to bring up the example of readiness, you know, we can talk about the readiness rates, which the military calls availability rates. And a good sort of um, state, you know, good sort of state if, if listeners and readers want to, or in your audience want to look at what the actual inventory for the Air Force is today, what their readiness rates are, uh, how many maintainers we have and so forth. Uh, J.V. Venable of the Heritage Foundation every year does a report card on the Air Force. So you can go to, you can Google J.V. Venable um, Heritage Foundation um, Air Force uh, report card, and you can find his, stu his, uh, his study from earlier this spring where he, he looks at the mission-capable rates or availability rates of our forces, how many hours our pilots fly, what's going on with our maintainers. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that, mo you know, that most of our fleets are less than 70% mission-capable. So if wow. I have 100 airplanes, on any day, I could maybe go fly 65 of them. Wow. You know, that's what it translates into. For yeah, our pilots, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, you know, yeah, for our pilots, um, during the Cold War, and this was really important, like in, in, in the 1980s, guys were flying three to five times a week. Five times was, I mean, really going and flying once a day, because that was your job. And we, that was really important because we knew that the Soviet Union, although they were not nearly as technically advanced as we were, they were no slouches. And so our tactics and our readiness, our training, we had the combat edge because we had the human edge. Right. And in, uh, you know, 2021, your average fighter pilot flew 80 hours a year. Wow. Uh, in 22, that came up to about 120. But that still only averages to flying about twice a week yeah which I is mean, yeah considering the mission i mean look at it just compared to what we expect of general aviation pilots and we're not putting our lives on the line and trying to do complex missions in amazingly complex aircraft thank you for so, saying that <laughs> yes <laughs> well it's i mean it's true um we're obviously gonna you know run out of time no matter what but one of the things that also seems to be top of the news, if we talk about Ukraine for a minute, I, I, we look at this supply side of, of what's available, and it seems that we are already seeing an example in, in a conflict not on our shores that even if it, even if it came to supplying F-16s to, to other countries, when they say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this deal with Poland or we're going to do this deal with this other NATO country, we're going to get them F-16s um, next year and 16 of them. I mean, it seems like we are already seeing both from what Russia's experiencing in their own world over there of, of supply and, and being able to do that and what we're experiencing in the ability to even support a third party. That is a, an amazing wake up call. 
amazing and terrifying. I mean, this is a cautionary tale for us, right? Um, and when the F-22 was in production, we thought that 32 a year was going to be a holy grail. That just, I mean, just we couldn't even imagine building that many airplanes. 32 a year. In the 1980s, we were, we were building 200 to 300, right? And this isn't even approximating what, you know, what we could build uh, during World War II. This year, the Air Force, which, by the way, I'm, I'm excited that they're buying a whole 72 airplanes this year, 72 fighters this year, because for the last 20 years, uh, mo more years than not, the, the Navy actually bought more airplanes than the Air Force did. Wow. Believe it or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so 48 F-35s and 24 F-15 EXs, just on the fighter side, right? We're just gonna talk about fighters. But 72 a year, even if they can maintain that production rate, will not be enough to turn the fleet over by 2040. Of That's total amazing. aircraft, the Air Force is looking over the next five years to divest a little over a thousand, and they will buy roughly 600. So we have a net loss over the next five years of 400 aircraft. Oh my. Yeah. I don't think that's something that the average American knows. No, and the Air Force is trying to be good stewards, right? I mean, they they have this strategy of divest to invest. And what that means is we have to get rid of older aircraft because like an old car, it costs more to, to maintain, right? So they're hoping to get rid of those costs and then apply that money towards research and development and mm -hmm. developing the advanced capabilities that we'll need um, in a pure fight, for example, against China. Looking at things like next generation air dominance, um, autonomous uh, aircraft, which they call collaborative combat aircraft, uh, mm -hmm. buy, you know, buying more B-21s, ensuring that we fully recapitalize our entire um, nuclear missile fleet the, uh, with the, uh, the Guardian, uh, the next generation ICBM, right? Ground-based strategic deterrent. So, and, and that's just part of it. We need to right. put up space constellations. And so they, by getting rid of these old airplanes, they want to take that money and invest that in research and development. But the problem is, is that that, any of those investments, those technologies and inventions will not be fielded for the warfighter until best case scenario 2035, probably more like 2040. Wow. When so it's like there we're talking in 15 years or more to see the benefit of some of that investment while you're reducing your force over and over. Um, you touched on, on China, and I at least want to have time to do an overview of that. Um, so that we have time for recap of, of what we can possibly do here. China seems to be the greatest existential threat that we face as a nation in terms of a conflict that would occur, let's say in Taiwan or in the South China Sea, that would truly affect the lives of Americans back home on a regular basis. Is that accurate? Yes, you said that so well. I mean, as tragic and as horrific as 9-11 was, your average American could get up the next day, walk down to the corner of Starbucks, and order a latte. I mean, nothing changed. 
China has the potential to truly change our way of life, not only from you know, a nuclear exchange perspective or a major combat perspective, but they could um, shift the international currency from the dollar. Mm-hmm. They could rewrite international rules of law. Um, they could rebalance uh, international relations. They could fundamentally change our daily lives in ways that we have not had to imagine um, since the since the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. So you're right that that is that is truly the existential threat that we need to think about. We lost Iraq and Afghanistan. Make no doubt about it. We lost that. I mean, when we and <laughs> And just as a side note, when we evacuated out of Kabul, we had to activate the civilian reserve air fleet mm. because our airlift was insufficient to do it alone. We had to we had to bring in the commercial we had to bring in the craft, right? Right. But we lost those we lost those conflicts after 20 years of blood and treasure, and it didn't change our lives. Right. Losing we, a competition with China would change our lives. Yeah, and. and- you know, we think about Taiwan, obviously, the impact that they have on things like semiconductors and economy, uh, the impact that trade would have with a big problem with China or control over the South China Sea seems, uh, yeah, like that is not, that is something that's going to hit home extremely fast and extremely hard if it happens. And it seems that we, our approach has been to be a de- one of deterrence in the past. And that we seem to be losing that capability if we're, if we're a bit of a paper tiger with the ability to project force halfway around the world like that. I could not have said it better myself. And we also need to remember that, I mean, and, and for all the reasons you said, like, like why Taiwan matters. Another reason why it matters is because that is truly symbolic of our willingness to um to fulfill our international security agreements with our partners and our allies. We're a superpower because other nations believe in us mm-hmm. and because we have vowed to protect them. And if we let that go, uh, that will again fundamentally change. So we are a paper tiger. If we yeah. have to project forces halfway across the globe, that also means we need to have significantly more forces because as we all know, right? Uh, we, when we plot out on our maps, distance equals time. And if you need to have a certain concentration or density of forces, the l- further you have to go, the more forces you need to have to maintain that density. But China's playing a home game. We'd be in their backyard. Mm-hmm. We, they don't need to outmatch us in numbers to be able to outmatch us in force. Right. So ultimately, I mean, the work that you're doing now is, as I said at the beginning, it, it's it's uh, I'm inspired by it, and and I'm uh, I'm really thrilled that you're you're doing this and taking this experience and moving it towards strategic guidance and trying to help influence what happens next. And so tell me, what 
what does happen next? Your reports obviously are available at the Mitchell Institute online. I'd encourage anyone to do that. And I will tell everyone we're going to put a recording of the show out. We will try to list all the books and as many links as possible <laughs> so you can follow up because uh, I'm sure all of you understand that having a conversation with Heather without a notepad out and asking her to stop so you can keep doing that um, is, is hard to keep up with. But that said, you've painted a picture of where we are today. And as Americans, we are, uh, I think, uh, we're just built in to be optimists that we can overcome and, and, and prevail in things like this if we make good decisions. What is it going to take and what is the work that you're doing right now to help change that future? Well, I'll, I'll share a few little things that, that it's going to take um, kind of immediately that's not part of my portfolio, but first is we need to encourage our, our congressmen and our senators to get real about um, lifting the debt ceiling, period, dot. That mm -hmm. is a near rock. That, that alligator is so close to the boat, it's already turned my toenails. Um, so we need to make sure that that, that debt ceiling uh, limit is, is lifted. Uh, and I kind of don't care how it happens, but it has to happen. Um, secondly, and this this is within our broader portfolio, and General Deb Tula writes about this all the time. You can follow him. He's got a, um, a, a column on, in Forbes that he writes quite often, uh, is we need to remove pass-through from the Air Force budget. And I know we've talked about all these strategic things, but let me tell you why this matters is because in some cases, money really can't fix stuff. <laughs> Now, money can't buy you time, and we didn't talk about time. I'm sure hopefully we'll have a chance to um, in a, at a future date. But, but the Air Force, a, a major reason why we're still living with these old aircraft and we haven't been able to modernize is because the Air Force, although it appears to be resourced well, is actually um, has fallen behind the Army and the Navy uh, for well over 30 years. Well, wow. so this pass-through money—I'll I'll just state it blank. Uh, you know, the Air Force's OSD is having the Air Force launder money for some of its um, defense-wide programs. So let, let's clarify this for some folks out there. If we look about look at funding for the military, um, you know, go in order. You said, are you've got Army, Navy? Well, so so this year, if we if we take the Marine Corps and the Space Force out of the Department of the, Nar the Navy and the Department of the Air Force, funding goes like this. Navy, Department of Defense, then the Army, then the Air Force, and then the Marine Corps and then the Space Force. And then you mentioned a pass-through. So even though the Air Force is there on that list, but way down on that list, hmm. it doesn't get to keep its own budget. Correct. That pass-through, like I said, it's it's basically laundered money. It's it's money that's included within the Air Force budget. So it looks like the Air Force actually is about the same as the Navy, but $40 billion just flows right through and goes to these defense-wide organizations and programs. And wow. it contributes nothing to the Air Force. And what so, about DOD on that list being so high and above the Air Force? What are we... What are we getting for that? What are we funding when we fund DOD above the Army, above the Air Force? A lot of that are intelligence community um, activities. Okay. And capabilities. 
which is why they care, why the DOD cares so much about that. It supports um, the Na National Command Authority, um, but it doesn't directly support the warfighter, mm. typically. Um, and, but that $40 billion, like that's, you know, and even that you can break into research and development and um, procurement and so forth, but it's basically half of the Air Force's procurement funding. You know, right. just like the federal government, there's a lot of non-discretionary money that the services have in their budget that they right. cannot play with, right? Um, and then there's the discretionary portion, which is typically maintenance, um, operations, and procurement and R&D, right? Wow. And that's where a lot of this uh, pass-through comes from. So taking the pass-through out would allow our, you know, our representatives, a lot of the Congress that provides oversight to go, hmm, you know, we're going to really depend on the Air Force in the Pacific. And if something were to happen in Europe, maybe we need to reallocate these budgets. Right. Well, I think any time that you play a shell game and are not upfront about where the money's going at the top level, uh, people being uninformed about that can't have a good outcome. Yeah. So, no, no matter what. And you mentioned earlier on, we've talked about obviously about the criticality of, of China as, as a threat. And you also mentioned that it's very different because they went to school on our way of doing things. And that makes us particularly vulnerable as a nation in a combat mm -hmm. situation to their strategy. You, you also wrote a paper recently on this having to do with the kill chain, which again, I'd encourage anyone, if you have a chance, go to the Mitchell Institute's webpage. We'll talk about that at the end, but you can read these papers and it's fascinating. It's terrifying, but it's fascinating. Tell us a, a, a little bit about what a conflict would look like over there and what we have to do. Well, by going to school on the air campaign in Desert Storm. China has, as you mentioned, Jeff, been studying the way that we go to war and they plan on having a fairly similar strategy and they call it systems destruction. So they will seek to um, disrupt, degrade and disable how we operate as a system because we now really, we play together, right? We use data links, um, we pass information, uh, we rely heavily on our command and control, which is, necessary because our force is so small uh, and but they know how we do that so by targeting um key nodes and when i say a keynote i'm talking about a physical thing like an airplane like an awax a j stars a satellite um, a command and control center by by targeting those and taking those out um, they can disrupt the whole operation they'll target our communication and our data links so if we can't talk to each other we're essentially paralyzed and ineffective. Um, they'll they'll seek to distort our relationships. So again, they'll do this through either jamming or through uh, actual attrition. Um, but like for example, if they were to take away an AWACS, um, suddenly maybe now uh, a flight of fighters might have to rely on satellites. But do they have the right data links? Do they have the right connections? Um, are they getting the right information? So by disrupting the relationships that we have it's really like you know for example if you're to take a quarterback out of a football game how are the rest of the players gonna like still move the ball down the field mm -hmm. right 
That's an example of how they would disrupt our relationships. And then finally, disrupting our operational tempo. So confusing us, um, slowing down how we share information, preventing us from being able to make command and control decisions. By, by, by really distorting that operational tempo, they can get us back on our heels and they can take the initiative. So wow. those are the four ways that they have literally told us they will target. And we know this through their doctrinal writings, through what they've written in their military schools and their white papers. So we should take them seriously. Yeah. There is so much more to talk about. I hope you will come back because uh, we didn't get a chance, obviously, to talk about drone technology a little bit other than referring to it. Collaborative, uh, uh, you know, technology. Combat aircraft, yeah. Uh, collaborative combat aircraft. Um, it, it just we barely scratched the surface. And, and uh, I'm just grateful that you came on the show to at least give us an introduction and a foundation to what some of this is. Hopefully you'll come back and we will get a chance to talk a little bit more. Absolutely. I would love to. And we can talk more little airplanes too. I mean, it's, yes. uh, it's aviation has, is for all of us, is mm -hmm. so core to who we are. It connects us um, that I'm just delighted that uh, to be here, and thank you for all that you're doing for our little community. Oh, you are very, very welcome, and I understand you're going to be uh, in our neck of the woods relatively soon at the Collings Foundation. We'll get you in here uh, as well in the in the studio and the build here on the T51. Uh, um, just uh, thank you so much. Uh, it, it's just always, always a pleasure and, and so informative to have you here on Social Flight Live. Oh, thank you, Jeff. This has been great. Absolutely. Have a wonderful evening, Heather. And you too. Good night. Thank you. Good night. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here again on Social Flight Live. We will do our best to put as many of those book references, individual references, and website links that Heather mentioned into the video, which will be available uh, on our YouTube channel. Just search for Social Flight, one word, Social Flight on YouTube. You can find our channel. Please subscribe and you'll be able to uh, follow us with this and future shows. We will let you know when Heather is coming back and we'll dive into all these other great things that she is an absolute expert on in terms of drone technology, new happenings in both defense and what's happening in, in Ukraine and, uh, and certainly uh, should there be anything in any other part of the world that we need to, uh, that we need to address urgently and uh, know what's happening and understand it. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies.